Well, good morning, church family. I uh, want to welcome all of you who are new here to Windsor Road. My name's Randy, and um, so I want to share a quote that I heard Friday night at our church's Celebrate Recovery. We have a Christ-centered 12-step community that meets every Friday night, and uh, it's called Celebrate Recovery. And here's the quote that I want to share with you. I love it. I cannot help you, for I am just a cookie. <laughs> now that'll preach. There's a bunch of sermons there, right? I'm, what's your cookie? See? What's your cookie? Now, now, don't get me wrong. I love cookies. I love cookies. I love oatmeal raisin cookies. And I thought we were going to have a church split last service because, uh, you know, I made mention that I didn't particularly care for chocolate chip cookies in my oatmeal raisin cookie. See, I'm telling did, did they talk? Did they... Did they tell you about this, you know, afterwards? Give him a hard time about it. So anyway, it's, uh, it's not a primary doctrine of Christianity, okay? It's the gospel according to Randy. But I love oatmeal raisin cookies. Fresh out of the oven, and you dip them in a cold glass of milk all the way down until you see the bubbles coming up from the mug. And then you take that moist sopping cookie out and you put that in your mouth and I'm telling you wow I love cookies but it's just a cookie right I cannot help you for I am just a cookie I cannot help you I'm just a job I'm just a degree I mean it's a good thing it's an important thing but it's not the thing. It's not solid ground. I cannot help you. I'm just a cookie. Is there someone who can help? Is there someone who can give us meaning and purpose and hope? Someone who can help us make sense out of the senselessness of our world today? The answer is yes. I know his name, and I want to tell you about him. His name's Jesus, and I want you to see him and hear him in a passage of Scripture that I want to share this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. We're beginning a season called the Simple Commission, and we're looking here this First several weeks of the commissioning passages of Scripture. Last week we looked at Matthew 28 in a section called the Great Commission. And I want us to consider uh, what could be argued to be an overlooked commissioning passage. In Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. It's the true story of someone who was captive to the tombs but met Jesus and through Jesus became commissioned as Christ's royal ambassador. It is the story of a changed life. It's the story of someone who had been standing on uncertain, sinking ground 
but found hope and meaning and purpose standing on the rock of Christ Jesus. And once he stood on the rock of Christ Jesus, he had a story to tell, the story of his own life change in Christ that once he told it, benefited those in his community. And this is where I just want to front load our big idea, the main lesson that we're going to see in these verses. And it's simply this. When changed lives share Christ, lives are changed for Christ. Let's just read that together. One, two, three. When changed lives share Christ, lives are changed for Christ. Again, when changed lives share Christ, lives are changed for Christ. That's what we're going to see in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, on page 840 of your church Bibles. Follow along with me as I read. They came to the other side of the sea. Who's they? That's Jesus and the twelve. To the other side of the sea. Sea. The Atlantic? The Pacific? No. The Sea of Galilee. So it was a lake. To the country of the Gerasenes. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that's Jesus now, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away 
and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is God's word. What strange verses. And what's with those pigs? What's Jesus got against pigs? I like cookies. I like pigs. You know? I I love good pork. Oh, my goodness. Little porgies and wooden hog. What's the... It's in the paper this morning in Ogden, the pink pig and little uh, Miss Piggy and Charlotte's Web. What's Jesus got against pigs? You know? Well, we've got to be careful not to impose our kind of cultural preferences onto this text here because... Orthodox Hebrews had a different perspective. See, and uh, I heard about a young pastor who preached to a country church in Iowa. It's filled with hog farmers. I don't know if we have any hog farmers in the crowd today. I may find out in the fireside room afterwards. But no sooner than he started his message, uh, one of those hog farmers raised his hand and said, Pastor, I don't know if you know this or not, but pigs can swim. And kind of derailed the pastor, you know? I mean, just... So I want you all to know that I know that pigs can swim until they can't. Why, why can't they? Well, this, this is what we see here in these verses. As we look at these verses, it's sort of in three movements. And the first movement you could title, evil is real. Evil's real. Second movement is, Jesus is almighty. And the third movement is, a changed life is a powerful voice for Christ. Kind of got those movements as I read this text, but that's what's going on here. And so let's just walk through these movements, beginning with evil is real. Did, did you notice how detailed these verses are? I mean, it's not just a bunch of pigs, there's 2,000 pigs, you know? And uh, in fact, this is the most detailed version in all of the Gospels of an exorcism. And it's as if Mark has recorded eyewitness testimony, that's in fact what we see here throughout his gospel account. And we know that because of the testimony of a second century pastor, early second century pastor by the name of Papias of Hierapolis, Papias of Hierapolis, who lived in what is now modern day Turkey. Papias was a third generation Christian And in the early second century, he wrote about the very gospel of Mark that we have in our hands. Papias said that Mark's account is the eyewitness testimony 
of the apostle Peter. There's a very, very important work that substantiates and does the homework for this claim. It's a book by the name of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses uh, by Professor Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham. And he argues, in addition to the testimony of Papias, that within the gospel itself are clues that Peter is the primary source of Mark's gospel. He says that in ancient literature at that time, certain signals would identify to the reader who the primary source was, much in the same way that footnotes do so today for our papers. And in this case, the very first disciple mentioned in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 16, Peter. The name of the very last disciple mentioned in Mark's gospel, Mark 16, 7, Mark 16, 7, Peter. And it's as if Mark is telling us in a literary way, that Peter is responsible for, you know, kind of the beginning and the end. And if you read through the Gospel of Mark, you will see that Peter is in almost every scene. As if Peter is telling John Mark, who is the author of the Gospel of Mark, here's, here's what I saw when I was with Jesus. It's Mark's way of, of identifying the primary source, Peter. So the question then is, what was it that Peter saw? What did Peter see? Well, Peter saw Christ calm the stormy sea of Galilee. Recall in Mark chapter 4, uh, this huge windstorm that beat against the boat as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee. Were you here in town during that windstorm earlier this week? It was terrifying. It was a ferocious wind. Can you imagine being out on a lake when something of that strength and magnitude of wind hit? The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles north to south, and then it's about 7 miles east to west, but it's only about 120 feet deep. What is that? That is what you call like a, 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 a coffee saucer, you know. So it's, it, comparatively, it's very, very shallow. And so when this wind came upon it, the waves beat against the boat, and it was evening, and grown men were terrified for their lives. Teacher, don't you care if we are perishing? They had to wake him up. And so here you have, here you have uh, Peter who is watching it storming, and then he's watching Christ snoring. And finally he woke him up, and there's Jesus. He's rubbing his eyes, scratching his side. What's going on? Don't you care if we drown? All right, all right, all right. Quiet, still. And that sea became as still as glass. And then Christ looked at his disciples, you know. Have you no faith? Did I not say, let us go to the other side? If I tell you we're going to go to the other side, we'll get there. And Mark 4.41 tells us of Peter and the others' amazement. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea 
obey him. Hmm. Who is this? Well, we find out he's Lord of the storm. And he's also Lord of all creation. That was during the night. And the next morning, they step out of the boat. And they are in the land of the Gerasenes. What's that? That's Gentile territory. It's non-Hebrew space. It's called the land of the Decapolis. That's verse 20. The Decapolis, Deca, ten, polis, cities. The land of the ten cities. So it was a part of the Roman Empire. It was, in fact, the eastern portion of... Uh, the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. And here in the midst of this Hebrew space is a very Romanized, a Greekified place. Let's take a look at some of uh, the archaeological ruins of the Decapolis region. If you were to go there today, you could see these. looks very Greek. It looks very Roman. And you've got uh, a city street. You've got this huge plaza. You've got these columns. It's quite an impressive uh, territory there, the ten cities, the Decapolis, the Gerasenes, Gentile territory. What did Peter see? He saw Jesus intentionally steer the boat with the disciples into non-Hebrew space. That's what he saw. This is the beginning of Christ's initiative to expand Israel to include every tongue and tribe and nation. Jesus' command to his disciples, his commission was to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is here beginning to fulfill his father's promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. Israel is to be a conduit through which the blessing and favor of God would flow. And that's why Jesus is in the land of the Gerasenes. But I'm telling you, it wasn't even the last foot of the disciple that was out of the boat than this screaming, out-of-control, wild man charged them. I mean, that's what it says in the original. Literally, it says, a man with a defiling spirit now, I don't know what you believe about demon possession. In our university community, there may be some who would find the notion of demonic evil primitive or mythological, even irrational. Here's the deal. They're right. If there's no God... If there's no God, if this world has come about just through blind chance, if the universe is a closed system and all that exists is just the natural world, then okay, I can see how someone could conclude that demonic evil is just irrational and primitive and mythological if there's no God. But then how can you call evil evil? I mean, evil really is a comparative term. Evil compared to good. Well, where's your notion of good come from? Is it, it, are you saying it comes from within the system? I mean, how do you explain its existence? You know, this week, our campuses are you know, flooded with students and 
So it's fall of 2019. The thought occurred to me this week. Okay, this is fall of 2019. Let me just backtrack. These students are 18, 19 years old. That means they would have been born, what, 2000, 2001? Wow, we got a generation here that's, that just have post 9-11. Are they really likely to buy the line of, of the moral relativism that's been taught in classrooms over the past three decades, really? What those men did with those airplanes on September 11th was evil. What terrorists do when they blow up buildings or kill hostages, that's evil. Gun violence against the innocent, that's evil. There is such thing as good and evil, right and wrong. There are unspeakable actions that are wrong in any culture at any time. And anyone who says otherwise is wrong. So if you believe in God, who is the source of all good, who himself is supernaturally good, then the existence of supernatural evil it makes sense. And it fits with a biblical worldview that asserts that evil is a part of an insurgency that's going on in God's creation. And so you see, even Rome isn't the enemy. It's the principalities and power behind Rome. That's what's evil. That's what's manipulating Rome. And so individuals and communities are but the battleground of this insurgency that's going on. And it happens in both individuals and communities. So this man was an individual example. His body was a battleground. And he lived in the tombs. A think subterranean cave. His hands and feet were marked and scarred from chains, crying out, cutting himself. He was a textbook example of what happens when we cut a deal with evil. For a while, on the one hand, he was extraordinary, extraordinarily strong, and yet he was a slave. You see? Isn't that what evil does? You cut a deal with evil. Extraordinarily strong, but you become a slave to that. A demonic army had inhabited his body. The scripture says such that no one could tame him. Oh, I know. Our church Bibles use the word subdue. But that's not what the word literally is. It's the word tame. A, a word typically used for animals, not humans. He acted like a wild beast. People treated him like a wild beast. How frightening. If you looked into his eyes, 
We're not talking about a chemical imbalance. We're not talking about bipolar disease or some virus. Some entity is tormenting this man. So listen, the Bible does not just lump all mental or psychological disorders into one category and call it demon possession. No, no, no. According to Matthew chapter 4, 24, we read of various diseases and pains those having seizures, those paralytics, those oppressed by demons. So the Bible distinguishes between mental illness, physical illness, demonic oppression. Some conditions are physical in nature, others emotional in nature, still others psychological, still others moral, and here spiritual. And they need to be dealt with accordingly. Literally, the scripture says that this man had a defiling spirit. A defiling spirit. So where do you put someone like that? I mean, you can't have them out on the interstate ramp. Looks bad next to the welcome to champagne sign. So I got to get him out of the way. Quarantine him. Quarantine him to the cemetery. At least we won't have to hear him moan anymore. Out of sight, out of mind. Put him where he'll be invisible, and then we won't have to deal with him anymore. The tombs will tolerate him more than the townspeople. It's a small price to pay for the sake of everybody else. One scholar said this, They made up for their lack of power by protecting themselves against that which they were unable to control. Hmm. And here is where we move from individual oppression to corporate oppression. In other words, evil not only inhabits individuals, but, but communities and corporate systems. Otherwise, cheerful, tax-paying people can be sucked into a spirit-defiled system. I'm thinking of uh, the journalist who wrote prior to World War II, it was as if certain forces sprang up out of the ground, giants of action, crafty, hungry for power, which nobody had noticed before, seemed to shoot up like a crop of dragon's teeth. And my concern when we're thinking about this word demon defiled is that we'll just, our minds will just immediately go to you know, the exorcist, full of gory, gooey special effects. And we overlook the more subtle ways Satan works. Pride. Anger. 1 Timothy chapter 3 cautions a new believer against assuming the role of an elder. Why? Or else that person may fall into pride, into the devil's trap, the devil's condemnation. And then Ephesians 4 says, anger, anger, nurtured, harbored anger gives Satan a foothold. Think about that. Two vices of the heart Invite demonic influence. And an entire culture can, can be affected 
through pride and anger. I'm, I'm thinking of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, The Coddling of the American Mind, where the authors wrote, in the next 30 years, there could very well be a catastrophic failure of American democracy. And why? They argue because of this assumption. Seeing life as a battle between good people and evil people. In this assumption, people assign the best motives to themselves and the worst motives to their adversaries. People assume that their own views are based on love while their opponent's views are based on hate. Each side thinks that it is driven by benevolence while the other side is driven by hatred. And that leads to contempt, and that leads to the shutting down of the other side and inflicting shame, and it also leads to a refusal to listen and engage in civil dialogue. See, here's the truth. The line between good and evil goes through every human heart. And that's what we see in this text. And Jesus comes on the scene, and this tortured man blitzes Jesus. Verse 7, why are you here? What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? How did he know it was Jesus? How did he know him by name? Don't you find that interesting? In Mark 4, 41, they're asking, who is this then? I'll tell you, the demons know who this is. And then this man says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. These demons are no rookies. They pronounced Jesus' name in an attempt to control him. Do, do not torment us. Yet weren't they the ones tormenting? <laughs> and then they appeal. Get this. <laughs> These demons appeal to Jesus' father in an attempt to get the other upper hand and obligate Jesus. <laughs> As if they're going to divide Jesus and his father. They're striving to meet Jesus as equals, but there's nothing equal between Jesus and the demons. For while evil is real, Jesus is almighty. See, he was the one who actually spoke first, verse 8. For he was saying to him means that what they said was in response to what Christ first said, which was this, come out of the man, you defiling spirit. And Jesus didn't have to roll up his sleeves. He didn't cast a spell. He just spoke, what's your name? Legion. Legion. Now, depending on which era of Roman history, a legion could be 4,000 soldiers or 6,000 soldiers. I don't know that Peter counted them all. Mark seems to be saying that a gang of defiling spirits had inflicted this man, and then Christ made landfall on his search and rescue mission don't you see, no place is safe for the armies of Satan. And this gang begged Christ not to banish them out of the country. You see who's in charge here? It's very clear. There's no negotiating. Jesus has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's only one person in charge here. And finally they say, look, those pigs. Send us there. May we have your permission to enter the pigs. And Jesus granted their request. So, so what's with the pigs? Why did he send them to the pigs? Because they asked. That's why. And at once, 
They vacated the man, invaded the herd, and every one of those pigs went just bonkers crazy. One scholar says the legionary force of pigs begins to stampede down the bank into the waters where both pigs and spirits are devoured into the deep. And the the power of the sea that frightens the disciples swallows the demons whole. The kamikaze demons fall victim to their own designs and tumble headlong into the chaos. The joke is on them. Verse 14 says the herdsmen went into town and talked about what they saw. And then the people came to see. Verse 15 says they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. You know what scared him, right? It wasn't the dying pigs. It was the living man. They who had beaten, chained, and dehumanized another human being, they didn't know what to do with this. They didn't know what to do with this. Who is this? So this is what it looks like when someone's life has been transformed by the Son of the Most High. They who tried to tame one with chains met the one who unchained him by his word and the word of Christ set the man free. Yet instead of welcoming the liberator into the city, they refuse him. They shun him. Whoever whoever Christ is, we don't want him. Verse 17. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Do, I mean, do they understand who it was they just unfriended? Hmm? And the demons begged Christ to stay in the region. The townspeople begged Christ to leave the region. They'd rather live with evil in their midst. The kind of evil that keeps people living among the dead. They'd rather choose that than choose the one who by his word can expel them and liberate humans like nothing before. They, they, they were more, they're more concerned about the demon's fate than the pigs. They'd rather cope with a demon-crazed man than meet the one who came to give life. And so they shoo off the very source of their salvation. And so you know what happened? Jesus left because he respects their choice. And he will not stay when he's not welcome. And the one with all authority benevolently gave them what they wanted. And he got into the boat. He got ready to leave. And then the scripture says this, verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Hmm. You see how many times beg shows up in these verses, right? The disciples beg Jesus to still the storm. Legion begs Jesus to enter the pigs. The residents beg Jesus to leave. And the man begs Jesus to take him with him. I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And here's this beautiful phrase that I found this week. You know, in the scripture, it says that he was talking with Jesus in his right mind, clothed, verse 15, In the ancient world, there is this phrase, 
I have clothed him. And that phrase is a formula for adoption. To clothe someone is to adopt someone. So this man's in the family of Christ now. Here, here was an unclean man with unclean spirits living in unclean tombs in an unclean town in an unclean region. From a Hebrew point of view, you couldn't get any more unclean than this. And yet it's the very place where the Son of the Most High appears. And when Jesus shows up, he's not infected by evil. He purifies it. And Jesus grants every request in this section of Scripture except the last. No, he says to the man, I need you to stay. And now he gives him the commission, verses 19 and 20. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. I, but I, 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 I've not been to seminary. You know, I, I, I don't know theology. Oh, oh yes, you do. You know mercy. You know grace. And you know that by experience. Now I want you to stay here. I want you to stay here. We've got plenty of help right now in Israel. But I need you in the Decapolis. I, I need you to talk. And, and here scholars call this man the very first missionary to the non-Hebrew people. The, the most unlikely missionary is the first missionary. Listen, the best defense for Christ is your changed life. A changed life is a powerful voice for Christ. I, that's such good news. It really is. Some of us can identify with this man. We see ourselves in this man beaten down, Excluded from society, a civil war raging within, living lonely lives invisible to the world. One author put it this way, I, I feel like 6,000 soldiers are inside of me, and sometimes they march left, and sometimes they march right, and sometimes they're in different directions. There's an army inside of me, and I feel like I'm losing the war. But Christ made landfall. And against this, <laughs> the legions of Satan are no match for the captain of our salvation. Is that not good news? Because of Christ, I'm whole. I'm clothed. And so your story is one of sharing your story. So here's what I looked like before I became a Christian. Here's what Christ did. And then that Christ stilled my soul as calm as he stilled that sea, sitting there clothed with Jesus. And, and though Christ himself, though the king was denied, he left his ambassador to speak on the king's behalf. You go tell your world. You go tell your family. You go tell your friends. You go tell your coworkers what the Lord has done to you in your life. And that man did. And when he did, he went away, verse 20, began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And look, everyone marveled. Everyone. That's, see, this is, this is our commission, church. This is why we're here. <laughs> now, what if we were ready at a moment's notice to share our story? What if we were ready? So, so, so here's, here's the homework. Here it is. What's your story? Between now and next week, write out your story on half page. 
300 words or less. Why 300 words? Because your good friends don't have time for a 45-minute sermon. Okay? But, but, but they can do two and a half minutes. See, They can do that. It's a story that consists of my life before Christ and now my life after Christ. And, and so here's mine. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were believers and active in our local church. And we visited the minister's office one day for a family Bible study, and it went like this. It's as if Jesus said, this is how God will rescue the world. My life will break, and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart, and your hearts will heal. I won't be with you long, he said. Soon you will be sad, but God's helper will come. You'll be filled with a forever happiness that will not leave. Don't be afraid. You're my friends. I love you. It's the story of death and resurrection, judgment and love, lostness and foundness. It's the story of the old passing away and the new taking its place. It is the one true story. And Christianity is not Jesus being invited into my story. It's me being written into his. And I want that because his story is better than mine. And so on May 14, 1972, I asked Jesus to put me in his story, to put me in his kingdom. And I received him in my heart. And my baptism reenacted what was going on in my spirit. So there it is. Now you can do that. And know this opportunities come to the prepared. So what if we were prepared? What if we took the long view? We're going to be here for a while. This is our Decapolis. What if we developed friendships? What if others heard your story and saw the quality of your life and said, I want that? And then what if they came here and grew here and learned their story here? And what if we gathered on Sundays and our conversations included Wow, I had this opportunity to share my story this week. And, and what if this community, what if this university was known for story after story of life change in Christ? The quality of your life always precedes the content of your faith. And when a changed life shares Christ, the world is changed for Christ. There it is. You know, at the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus and this man exchange places. At the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus is naked. Jesus is crying out and bleeding. Jesus is driven from the, into the tomb. Uh, by sacrificing himself in love, Christ wiped out evil without wiping out us. And when you see the cost, it shows you how much he loves you. It's only when you see the cross that you know I'm loved. And the cross deals death to death. The cross defeats death. So now, my career is just a career. My home is just a home. It's not my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. And here in Mark 5, we read about how Jesus took a demonized man and turned him into an angel of the gospel. Angel means messenger. A messenger of redemption. And when he spoke, the community marveled because they remembered who he was. And they heard what Christ did and they saw him whole. Maybe 
what happened to this man can happen to me. Maybe, definitely, definitely, I cannot help you, for I am just a cookie. But I know someone who can and has and will. His name is Jesus. Come to him.